I could list every chef possible and why they're important to me. Alfred Portali, Tom Colicchio, Thomas Keller, Alice Waters. Beyonce, Ella Fitzgerald. Paul Robeson, Amiri Baraka, Joe Hill. You know, people like Toni Morrison and Ralph Ellison. Chekhov is an early love. The deadpan seriousness of Alan Arkin. I first heard of Martin Scorsese through Shark Tale. <laughs> the animated Will Smith movie. I'm Josh Hamilton. And I'm Joe Skinner. And this is the American Masters Podcast. Today, we talk about what it means to stand on the shoulders of giants. This season, we talk with actors, filmmakers, chefs, musicians, activists, authors, and comedians to hear about their work, but also to identify some singular driving force behind their success. It might seem obvious, but everyone has someone or something that they look to from the past and can point to as an inspiration, whether it's an influential public figure or just an everyday encounter. No one creates anything in a vacuum. What's interesting to me is how these influences get embedded into their work. Like in your conversation with comedian Bo Burnham, he talks about a desire for a connection that kids express through YouTube and social media. A girl recording a video about being cool in her bedroom, a 13-year-old presenting themselves publicly, privately to an audience that may or may not be there is very, very, very complex. I, I don't know, social media in a very weird way is like amplifying, externalizing, uh, uh, like speeding up, streamlining the process by which we imitate and perform ourselves. Bo and Miranda July feel like kindred spirits in finding connections through these contemporary conditions that we find ourselves in. Most poignantly, July talks about a connection she made through a chance encounter with her Uber driver. Amaru Idrisa, he told me his whole life story, which starts in Niger and in West Africa, and he's driving here and sending money back to there and really as many people do, sort of living in two places and two very different identities and spanning reality that's like, I mean, so impoverished. We texted now and then, and he went home. His mom died. He lost his place. Um, and I said, you know, I, I have an office, this office, uh, that I'm in nine to five, but if you want to be there five to nine, that's fine. There's a bed. Part of his story that I was was learning was that he didn't sleep. He just barely slept at all. And that was this kind of leftover PTSD from all these years where he was illegal here. Now he's a citizen, but he he had some, you know, times where the immigration authorities knocked on his door and he hit, you know, he knew they were after him and that to sleep at all felt very unsafe and it just had not gotten out of his body yet and still hasn't. And a little while ago, I, I was commissioned to, to make a piece for the Victorian Albert Museum for a, a big show about kind of design of the future. And I got really interested in, in curtains, in these smart curtains that are supposed to kind of reflect your habits. You can program them to open different times of day because the curtains would be in a museum in, in London, but I wanted the person here to be triggering them. I thought, well, the problem is the time difference. Like anyone here would be asleep when the museum is open. And then I thought, not Omaru, because <laughs> <He's, laughs> he doesn't sleep. And so the piece that we made 
when he wakes up, these beautiful blue velvet curtains open. When he opens Instagram, another pair of curtains opens. When he opens WhatsApp, another one op opens. When he opens Uber, another one opens. So they're op all day long in the museum. These, these four curtains, different colored curtains, are opening and shutting according to the live data that's coming to them. And he's on his phone all night long. I was interested in how, how is it different for someone whose home is dispersed. Everyone he loves is awake at night. That's like another reason why you might want to be awake and why you'd be what's apping like crazy. Like we all want to be more present um, and not be on our phones. And for him, I, I think being present involves being on his phone. Like I, I think the way the technology functions in his like deepest self or in his heart is uh, a little different when you don't have the privilege of everyone you care about being right there with you. And of course, we all know about that from like traveling. <laughs> um, but if your whole life is lived that way, your whole lifetime, um, you might judge those habits differently. We'll often point to celebrities or award-winning artists as major influences. But sometimes it's just a small moment from everyday life or from our childhood that we come back to again and again. Like in your interview with actress Lois Smith, she talks about growing up in a religious family in Topeka, Kansas, and in Seattle in the 30s and 40s, and it seemed like she was really driven to acting from watching and participating in regional plays that her father would put on at the local church. I was a very little girl when this started, and I would go with him to rehearsals because it was fun. And I would sit there, learn all the lines. If somebody wasn't there, I could say their part. That was clearly the beginning. Here's filmmaker and musician Boots Riley on some influences from his youth. Uh, I remember seeing my grandmother put on a production of Flash Gordon. You know, it wasn't just a play, because I had seen my sister in plays and stuff like that, and which was, for me as a kid, like just a lot of talking and arguing on stage or something like that. But this was like people in space suits and running and laser guns going off. And I just remember thinking about just this, the spectacle that was being had. And so that was from a young age. And, and then seeing her act and do poetry and things like that, that definitely had a lot to do with me feeling like you can just go out and do the things you want to do. I mean, that in com combination with stuff that my father did. When I was a kid, I remember my father coming home with his ribs bandaged up and me asking him what happened. And he said, well, we went to fight the Klan in Chicago. One of them got me with the two-by-four in the back. And, and I remember thinking how he wasn't feeling sorry for himself. He was just feeling like, oh, man, you know, I let them get me. You know, that sort of a thing. Yeah, so I knew that all of that was there, but then later when I was like 11 and 12, I definitely wanted to be Prince. So that existed, and at the same time, I was addicted to television, and all of those things were happening at the same time, right? But when we write about this stuff, we write about the world in the way that it's been written before, or we have this tendency to feel like that is the world. So rebellion ends up not being in a lot of the art that's 
the influence that pop culture and art has on us is it shapes our idea of the world and what's possible. It's possible that author Viet Thanh Nguyen might agree with Boots Riley's sentiment. Nguyen talks about art as a living, breathing organism that puts a mirror up to society. And I think he and Boots Riley are driven by the same sense of rebellion. I see it ultimately as a very idealistic and hopeful vision for art and culture. Nguyen cites the great work of giants like Toni Morrison and Ralph Ellison as major influences. But for a very different reason, he also cites filmmaker Francis Ford Coppola, whose film Apocalypse Now in part inspired his Pulitzer Prize-winning novel The Sympathizer. In the early 1980s, uh, my parents brought home a VCR. They were, I think they were actually pioneers uh, in, in terms of this technology, consuming this technology. And I think after I watched Star Wars a dozen times, uh, I, I, Apocalypse Now was one, was one of the first movies that I turned to. And I don't know why. I mean, back in those days, you actually had to go to a video store and rent the videos. There was a limited selection, you know. And I sort of, I think, vaguely understood that it was about Vietnam, and I understood that I was from Vietnam. I'm not even sure I'd even seen anything about the Vietnam War yet at that time. And so watching that movie was a really weird experience because it, my experience of watching war movies had been through watching John Wayne or Audie Murphy and these really highly sanitized versions of World War II, for example. And then here comes this really psychedelic, weird, violent, obscene film. And I think I just wasn't ready for it. And watching that movie was, was a really difficult experience for me because the middle of the movie is all about the American sailors uh, massacring Vietnamese civilians. And I know, in retrospect, obviously, that, that Coppola was doing this in order to exhibit the brutality that was going on and what American sailors were doing and all of that. But from my perspective, as a little kid watching that movie, I was identifying with the American sailors uh, as I would watching a John Wayne movie up until the moment they killed Vietnamese civilians, because at that point I realized I was also a Vietnamese person and that my only role in this movie was to be like those civilians on the boat getting killed. This was my really first moment of real exposure with the depths of American racism. In my own personal life, I had only rarely encountered direct racism to my face. And somehow this moment, even though it wasn't personal. It wasn't like an individual doing this to me. It felt intensely personal because I knew that this was, was being directed at me. Not that I think Coppola was doing it on purpose. I think the power of racism is such that he didn't have to do it on purpose. The assumption could simply be that Vietnamese people had no speaking role whatsoever in this American imagination. Americans don't think of that as racist, but it is racist. And I think I understood it viscerally and intuitively at that point. And it would take a very long time for me to try to work through it, to understand it, to understand how popular culture can be racist, to understand how narratives can be racist, can be incredibly powerful. And I think those two things are utterly compatible. Great works of art can be utterly racist because they are expressions of deep racism within the culture. And so I, it took me a long time to understand, to make sense out of this and to understand that my mission as a writer, besides writing something great, hopefully, was to also contest this deep-seated racism at the heart of the canonical tradition. Something I've learned from our conversations is that we're not just standing on the shoulders of living, breathing giants. Like Viet Thanh Nguyen suggests, art reflects a cultural moment that is bigger than one person. And so I think we must all try to be aware of our collective memory 
And I think some of the most successful people are very learned students of history. Chef David Chang talks a lot about food as a critical narrative element in telling the story of our collective memory. And even if he is trying to rebel against old modes in the restaurant business, it's done with a deep respect for history. To paraphrase what Wolfgang Puck has said, someone that's been instrumental in my career, it's like American food is an amalgamation. Of, it's the greatest melting pot of culinary cuisines in the world. That's what American food is. And when you really look at just any food in general, it's all fusion. It's all some kind of point of view that is easier to understand whether it's French or Italian. But, like, honestly, if there's no collision of cultures, you're not getting any kind of cuisine anywhere. It's going to be pretty bland, you know. And I look at what America is as food, and it's genuinely everything else, right? It's not America. It's literally immigrant food. And I'd argue that if you're going to say American food is anything, majority of American food to me is probably food from the uh, American slice, right? Like so much of our food is from black culture and no one quite wants to see the truth in that, but I do think it is. For me, food has always been a basic necessity that I just take for granted. David Chang really opened up my eyes to appreciate how all the same levers of cultural and historical influence that affect the movies in our theaters and the music in our ears also affect the food on our plates. Activist and author DeRay McKesson talks a lot about these invisible levers of change. We caught him at the start of the tour for his first book, On the Other Side of Freedom, The Case for Hope. And he spoke to us about some of the unsung heroes of the civil rights movement, like Bayard Rustin and Claudette Colvin. Uh, I went to Montgomery, and what was sort of incredible about Montgomery is that you can see the marker of where, um, of where Rosa got on the bus and where she got off, and it's like, you know, she wasn't. She was on the bus for like a hot minute. It was real quick. But Claudette Colvin was actually the first person to challenge and not get off the bus and like sort of push back against the Montgomery Bus Company. But she was young. She was sort of like seen as feisty. Wasn't seen as like a good example or like a good face for uh, that part of the movement. So Rosa Parks is who we know. So I write about her when we think about like all the people that have been forgotten. You know, I look to people like Baird Rustin, who was gay and was shunned in the civil rights movement because he was gay. You know, you read his writings, and it's, like, very plain, logical, like, this is why we did it, this is what people said, this is what people challenged. Like, I think he's underrated in the space. I think about Joanne Robinson, too, who I also write in the, about in the book, is that I didn't know until I went to Montgomery that the bus boycotts was started by, like, a professor who... You know, she saw what was happening. She, like, got a friend to, like, open up a space where she could, like, make uh, flyers, essentially. And she passed out, like, 50,000 flyers. And, like, that is what started the bus boycotts. It was, like, a person who believed that the world could be different and then organized people around her. And the narrative that we get told so often is, like, well, the young king and all this people came in and, like, they organized. And, like, they definitely came and provided the infrastructure. Uh, but it was really the belief of one, two, three people, four people who, like, helped create a moment. So what does it mean to stand on the shoulders of giants? Well, it's complicated. It's not always as simple as a hero who has inspired us. It might also be the food on our plate. It might be an idea or a movement. It might be a name that's been wiped from our collective memory. It might be an Uber driver or a random YouTube video. It might even be someone or something that we, that we hate. But at the end of the day, sometimes it is as simple as having a hero. In my life, when I've encountered artists, it's so easy to feel like they just came into the world as these fully formed geniuses with uh, singular visions. But as you get older and start to do deeper dives on some of the people, you realize that there's this pattern of 
people consciously choosing their inspirations and their heroes and sort of as a foothold really just copying them at first it's almost a, a almost a necessary step that you notice with a lot of people on the on the path to finding their own true voice i've definitely been skeptical of the idea of simple hero worship but in your conversation with bo burnham i think he addresses this skepticism in a, in a really eloquent way would you say the idea of a role model is an outdated concept interesting hey, you know no, it truly is. Like, we're not going to get rid of religion. That's my answer. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, that's like the the idea of anything is the idea of structure and archetypes. And, you know, you need to admire something. You need an ideal that you, to strive for. You need to probably embody that ideal in a person to make it tangible, even if that person does fail. I'm much more ambivalent about this stuff than I used to. Be. You know, I used to just tear all this stuff down and say, get rid of it. And then I realized, like, there, there's just some structure that can't just be abstracted. We, we need people to embody our values. It's not only the giants. I think we all stand on each other's shoulders and hands and hearts and thoughts. Later this summer, we'll begin a whole new season of interviews, including a new conversation between filmmaker Susan Lacey and actress Lee Grant, who was blacklisted from working in Hollywood at the height of the McCarthy era. In 1951, after refusing to testify against her husband in front of the House on American Activities Committee, Lee Grant was unable to find meaningful work in film and television for years of her prime. This experience led her to a second career in documentary filmmaking, where she explored the lives of people who dealt with and overcame injustice. Her 1981 documentary, The Wilmer Eight, was a key film in this catalog. Women employed in the bank went on strike because the president of the bank would hire these boys to be trained by them to be their bosses. The whole situation was so was so crazy to me that I said, let's do it. Let's go make a documentary there. And suddenly we were in Wilmer, Minnesota, and the ice cold. It was so cold that I couldn't ask questions of people on the street. My mouth couldn't fret. But those women were walking up and down in front of the back in, in that kind of cold, holding banners that said, you know, we won't train boys to be our bosses. It was injustice. And it was something that I had lived through that I could never claim. In all of these next situations that I went into, they were all on the part of people who couldn't speak for themselves, or I couldn't speak for myself. I mean, it was friendships cut in half by who gave the committee names and who took the Fifth Amendment and refused to. And so the, 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 the kind of connection that I had with these people, with all of the people who, whose lives I went into, was so close to my own. And I had such a connection with what they were going through.
Thanks for listening. And if you've missed any episodes from this season, go back and check them out. And if you like what you've heard, please go to your podcast app and give us a rating or review. The American Masters podcast was created by Michael Cantor and is produced by Joe Skinner. And co-produced by Josh Hamilton, with sound engineering by Josh Broom, John Berman, and Gerard Collins. For American Masters, we thank series producer Julie Sachs, supervising producer Junko Sunoshima, and production coordinator Krista Campbell. Our theme music is by Infinity Shred. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in August for a whole new season of the American Masters podcast.